Welcome to the Leader's Edge podcast. I'm Sandy Laycox, Editor-in-Chief of Leader's Edge. In this episode, I welcome some of my favorite guests, Joel Wood, Joel Kopperud, and Blair Bartlett, the Government Affairs team from the Council. We're talking about all things employee benefits. We get the temperature on Capitol Hill these days, their take on the legislative primaries going on, responses to the Roe v. Wade draft and what that might mean for employers, as well as some conversation around pharmacy benefits and transparency there. Give it a listen. Blair, Joel, Joel, always great to have you here and chatting with me. How's everybody doing? Doing fine. It's uh, been too long, Sandy. It has. I think it's been since February that we talked. So we're going to dive right in. Uh, There's a lot going on in your world, um, especially in the past few weeks. We're going to start with the primaries that have been going on. Uh, Give us your take on recent results and then what's coming up that we need to pay attention to. Well, I'm sure... Joel Copperwood would like to start with Madison Cawthorn, but uh, I I would say more (laughs) environmentally. um, I think what we've seen, you know, aside from the issue of Trump endorsed, not endorsed, what's going to play out in Pennsylvania, all of this kind of stuff is the Republican Party is what we're seeing in the races. So today is Republican Party becoming the blue collar party, the establishment Republicans just pre-Trump will never be the party uh, going forward. And I think, you know, there's a difficult transition going on that, but whether it's J.D. Vance, uh, who embraced Trumpism after denouncing Trumpism, uh, whether it's Ted Budd in North Carolina, whom we supported as a, a, a strong member of the House Financial Services Committee, but uh, defeated the uh, moderate former governor and uh uh, and then a lot, you know. Fortunately, we've got the largest pack in the financial services industry by far, and uh, we've had a lot of success. And you know, I think that there's been frustrations from my standpoint as a Republican, just as I think there have been frustrations from your standpoint, Joel. Uh, like the primary in Oregon, where uh, a centrist conservative Democrat was uh, thrown out by a progr- member of the progressive wing. I don't know how you feel about John Fetterman being your standard bearer in Pennsylvania, but you know it's it's tricky on both sides. Yeah, I think there's a you know it's fifty fifty. It's the question is is this are we witnessing the death of the political center or not? And you can make the case on either side. I think yeah, we lost some strong moderate Democrats and Republicans. I think looking at the primary results, uh, and these will continue. There's a lot of big primaries around the corner. It's gonna be primary season really until September. Uh, so we'll see how it plays out on the Trump stuff. I think it's really he's had just as many losses as he has had wins. And people never really talk about how because of Donald Trump, Republicans lost the Congress and they lost the presidency. So the question is, is his hold on the Republican Party in these primaries going to help them or hurt them in an election that should be a gimme uh, for Republicans? Now, there's a lot of questions going into all the events I've been to with Democrats, a lot of buzz about the leaked Supreme Court draft of repealing Roe, does that help them politically? Will that get the base to turn out? There was an interesting poll the other day that I saw Roe is now, or abortion access is now equal to the economy as the number one voting issue wow. um, nationally. Now, national Who the hell's poll was that? I was going to say, that? what poll is that, Joel? I think it was an MSNBC poll that was on Sunday. I can MSNBC, yeah. there you go. There's your answer. <laughs> no, because I saw a, another poll that I think it was a D triple C internal poll that saw on the generic ballot that Republicans are up eight points. And that's never happened. Right. And Biden's favorabilities are under 40% now. Uh, 
You're right. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's that's I'm trying not trying to say it's going to be a good year for Democrats. I think everyone thinks it's going to be a bad yeah. year for Democrats. But so. let's 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 quickly pivot this to or, or connect the dots on the commercial insurance agenda. We are on the eve of our Employee Benefits Leadership Forum at the Broadmoor. Super excited about it. More than sold out. We don't have enough rooms. Our meeting people are going nuts about it. Um, a lot of enthusiasm. We're going to have a lot to talk about. And I guess the question I would first pose to you is. Given the environment that we're trying to uh, advance uh, uh, our agenda in, um, what, if anything, is going to happen legislatively on the health care agenda this year? And knowing that it's mostly going to be a posture for whatever happens after the election, what are the kinds of things that have a real shot uh, that, at impacting negatively or positively the employer-providing group health insurance marketplace? I mean, up to this point, all of our eggs have really been in the reconciliation bill <clears throat> and whether or not that has any legs in the Senate. And I can tell you, I hosted a dinner for Senator Cinema last week and heard directly from her that she's not having any serious conversations with anybody about it. She talked, there's a lot of buzz about Joe Manchin, where he's at. He has said he supports a scaled-back version that includes... A lot of good things for us, including the Medicare uh, negotiated drug pricing issue, a lot of scaled back versions of, you know, the energy, uh, uh, climate related provisions. Uh, but he's very ardent on tax reform mm -hmm. and getting a 25% corporate tax rate. And cinema is And he's for a 28% capital gains. That's uh, right. Rate. Up to 28%. Yeah. So she's she's very, uh, she said, she, she doesn't think anything's going to happen because no one's talking to her. And I just read a really interesting piece in Politico all about where Manchin and Schumer are putting pen to paper and figure out what can happen. And as long as if they're not roping in cinema, it ain't going to happen. So I, I'm, I don't think a lot's going to happen. I, I, do I don't think, think that too this... that they're, forgive me for interrupting, but uh, oh, that's what we do. Uh, I do think that there is a, uh, a, a, a sentiment that given how nervous Democrats rightfully are about the election, what would they, what's the point in doing tax reform and, and a tax package. That's never anything but a negative. Right. You would think so, but they keep talking about it. Um, and, it, you know, being the, you know, kind of the the realist, you look at everything that has to get done where there are deadlines. You have funding by September 30th. You have a National Defense Authorization Act. You have one of the biggest conference committees, you know, working out a huge China um, technology bill. Um, there's a lot of air you know, that's already taken up. Um, so I just, I don't see how a reconciliation bill gets done, like Joel said. And then there's potential, you know, of a Secures Act 2.0 that could get done on the retirement side. And but, uh, that's encouraging. But um, one of the things that's a little bit of a wild card as well, if they're able to get something down the stretch, all of the expansion of the subsidies inside the ACA exchanges are going to disappear at the end of the year because they... The American Rescue Act last year only extended those. It'll be like the child care tax uh, credits uh, that will just go away. Yeah, and, uh, and, and the House will be gone for the month of October leading up to the election. And then you see, you know, maybe they do like a short term, you know, budget deal to get through the election. And then maybe they add, you know, they do an end of the year funding bill that has those extensions and it has secures access. I, I think all of us, you know, Joel begrudgingly and you and I enthusiastically, Blair, uh, believe that Republicans are going to control the House, the Senate a little less clear. Um, 
there have been a series of task force meetings, and we are seeing Republicans going through a process. There are three major committees of jurisdiction and trying to identify what their priorities are going to be. But honestly, it seems like the same tired old list of things that yes. do not constitute comprehensive health care reform. It's stuff like, you know, association uh, health plans, association health plans, buying across state borders. I mean, look, we're all for tort reform and med mal reform and the cost of defensive medicine are a big deal. But you're not going to be able to do that with a Biden presidency. Uh, and frankly, Republicans have teased up the opportunity again to potentially undermine the employer exception from taxation for, for group health plans. Um, I'm not in a panic about what Republicans would do in control on health care, but I think that we would be largely gridlocked. So what are the areas that either of you think that they can in a post-mid-year election environment with a President Biden damage going into the 2024, um, at least in terms of overall, overall approval? That could change. There's a million news cycles between now and between now and then, and uh, and 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 a Republican-led House and potentially Republican-led Senate, Where, where's the room for anything positive coming out legislatively on health care? I mean, the two most deliverable, the biggest deliverables that Kevin McCarthy is going to have is really government funding and increasing the debt limit, and that's yeah, going to be a challenge. The, so the big question votes. is, assuming that he, assuming Republicans take the House, I think everyone's talking about what is his margin going to be. Is he going to have a five seat margin or a six or three like Pelosi's been dealing with where she's struggling to get Joe Manchin and AOC on the same page? Or is he going to have a 20, 30 seat margin where he can actually do things? He has to have over 20. So that's the question to get anything done. Uh, and if he wants to get something done related to their agenda, aside from just keeping the government open, he's going to have to have a really, really robust margin. Uh, and let's not forget that after the midterms, that's when presidential election season really begins in interest. So there's a real question. Does Joe Biden run for president again? Does he run for re-election? Do we see Donald Trump announce what happens over there? And that's going to dictate the narrative. And that's really going to dictate what happens in Congress. And typically, I would argue that when you see divided government, the Congress of the minority party that doesn't control the White House generally passes a lot of messaging bills, knowing it's not they're going to be vetoed. So I would suspect we see a lot of messaging bills but that's dangerous, uh, depending. That could be dangerous for the Republican Party. First time ever I've heard you talking about Joe Biden maybe not being the next nominee of the Democratic Party. In 1976, uh, it was when Jerry Ford's numbers hit 40 percent that Ronald Reagan decided to run against him. It was in the 1980 election when Jimmy Carter's numbers hit 40 percent that Ted Kennedy decided to run against him. Now, they both were unsuccessful, but... It sure seems to me like every one of those candidates in 2020 who got up in the morning and saw the president of the United States in the mirror, it seems like they're all running, posturing uh, for a run again in 2024. Is that your sensation? Uh, yeah. And every event that I go to, it's really funny. It's almost reminiscent of what happened in 20, going into 20, I got to think 16? 2020. What year is it? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, all the Democrats and the lobbyists, we'd go around the table and say, who's your candidate? Who's your guy? And Joe Biden was almost always the last one. He was like the safe pick, but not the one that anyone actually wanted. Uh, and we're seeing that again. But now no one wants Biden. I think there's a lot of the base isn't pleased with him. He hasn't really delivered on a lot of the issues. Now, he's done a lot. Don't get me wrong. The bipartisan infrastructure package was huge. What they've done on all the funding packages and the COVID and whatnot. He's done a lot, but he has not really enthusiastically pushed the, the agenda forward. So the party is a little bit at odds, like who's going to be next? 
it's, I don't think there's a lot of enthusiasm behind Harris. There's, I think you generally think? You would, he would hear that there's a lot of C <laughs> candidates out there, but no like real A and B candidates. Uh, so how does that play out? I mean, Republicans have the same I would make the case if Brexit was a precursor to Trump, was Macron's re-election a precursor to a Democratic successor after Biden? Macron had a, has a mid-30s approval rating. He also did not deliver a lot on his base. His base is not pleased with him. He ran against a nationalist. And the election ended up being a, a referendum on nationalism rather than a referendum on Macron. A lot of similarities there. Would that be repeated here? Could it be? I don't know. We won't have the same candidate running like they did in France. Uh, but there's a lot of ifs, ands, and buts. Does Trump run again? Is it Trump or DeSantis? DeSantis certainly is taking up all the airwaves and making a lot of moves to police the base. A couple of months ago, I was at a, a lunch with Mitt Romney, small lunch, and um, I just asked him the obvious political question. And he said, now, and keep in mind, Mitt Romney's relationship is not the strongest with Donald Trump. Uh, he said, 75% of our base thinks that he's the legitimately elected president of the United States. It certainly sounds like he's running for president again. So I assume if he runs, we've got like 13, 14 credible candidates on our end. I assume that he will be renominated. And I don't assume that he won't be reelected. And uh, you know, I felt in need of a strong drink uh, at that moment. But uh, uh, there may be some truth in that. And I do think that I hear constantly about DeSantis um, as much as he, he makes... Democrats cringe just as almost as much as Trump makes them cringe. Uh, there is, you know, there is a gathering sensation that if there is that the, the anti-Trump vote is going to have to consolidate behind one candidate. And certainly his star is burning a little brighter now. But, you know, there's a million news cycles yeah, uh, that's between right. now and then. And I, and I think whoever, you know, even if it's on the Democratic side or Republican side, the thing that Trump does well, and yes, he does do things well, is he talks to people how you and I would talk, how you would talk to like your cousin at your back bar backyard barbecue. He doesn't talk to them like they are, that he's better than they are. Um, he brought... He doesn't down talk to people edge. like he's well, better than they I would are. I say that maybe that wasn't the best phrase to use. Um, he kind of. I, lo I love George W. Bush's line. He says that guy makes me sound like Shakespeare. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, he kind of showed you know showed people like it was a middle finger. He yeah, expresses yeah. populist anger yeah. towards Washington and institutions and and nationalism and yeah, I'm. I, I, I'm sort of like Elon Musk. I think he had a lot of strong people in the administration, notwithstanding all the chaos associated with it. I agreed on most of the yeah. major legislative priorities. I was tickled pink with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act uh, that did a lot for many of our member firms, almost all of them. Um, but yeah, it's Trump. We're not going to resolve it here. Let's go back to employee benefits for a sec. Please. <laughs> <laughs> So we've had another sort of hot button issue come up uh, recently, the leaked draft of the Roe v. Wade decision. And in response, some uh, employers have offered benefits to employees to to be able to, um, you know, get abortions in other states or travel or whatever they might need to do. So what are our thoughts on abortion rights as an employee benefit? A lot of questions around this. And I don't think we can speak at all about certainty around this table, but we know that this is going to be a big issue for the industry moving forward. Uh, it's complicated because, like all things that are cultural, the divide reaches our membership and reaches all levels. It's a very divisive issue. Uh, but there's, you know, there's there's a lot of questions on state laws. What's you know, there's 
Are the states going to ban contraception? Are states going to require women to take a pregnancy test before they leave the state? These are all proposals. Uh, and if you're a member of, if you work for J.P. Morgan Chase, if you work for any you know, company that has presence across the country, can you access abortion outside the state? What kind of um, anonymity is associated with that? The whole thing. Will the Commerce Clause trump, in the Constitution, trump states' rights? That's a big question uh, that a lot of lawyers of our member firms are, are grappling with right now. Um, this came up at the dinner that I hosted with Senator Cinema, and you know, a lot of angst over not just the future of Roe, but all of the issues that were attached to the privacy rights that were created because of the Roe decision in the 70s. And that's all the gay rights, um, all of that. These are all culture war issues that are going to resonate in the workplace. And there's a serious role for corporate leadership to play here. And how are corporate benefits going to reflect the values of that company? In an era where it's difficult to retain, attract and retain a talented workforce, where the workforce is more powerful than they've ever been before, when they can work remotely, uh, lots of questions here. Uh, and it's gonna be fascinating to peel back the onion with some of our uh, brighter executives on this. Yeah, and it's just, it's gonna be hard to, to kind of predict until we know what that final decision is. Right. Because some states have trigger laws and what, um, you know, what's going to happen there. And it's I know we always want to, you know, try to have our crystal ball working. But in this case, it's going to be really hard. So let's move to another controversial topic, prescription drugs. There's price transparency issues going on, along with increasingly uh, specialty drugs, increasingly costing more and more. What are you all seeing in this area? I mean, I, I, I am an optimist that there is I there is bipartisan sentiment yeah. on the issue. Now, nobody can quite agree what they want to do about it. The biggest pain point, one of the biggest pain points that we hear constantly from our benefits brokers uh, is the cost of specialty drugs, uh, particularly in smaller self-insured plans. Uh, something's got to be dealt with there. I say this on the, you know, just after Martin Screlly was released from prison uh, and um and PBM reform. And I think that there's there's a lot of bipartisan sentiment on that. And frankly, we're mad as hell that we negotiated with Congress a, you know, provisions that impacted broker transparency on ERISA plans prospectively. That's a very tricky, difficult thing to do because of a hundred different sources of compensation, they're all very difficult to predict. We work with the Labor Department to roll these out. This, uh, the agreement that we came to with Congress when this was enacted in 2020 in December was that this was going to happen to everybody throughout the healthcare ecosystem. And the PBMs, the big three controlling 80% of it, say that those provisions do not apply to them. I think there's just a growing sentiment, whether it's coming from pharma, which we have our own problems with pharma on. And frankly, they're the ones that negotiate these deals with the PBM, but they're very critical of them as a trade association. And the growing um, drumbeat from organizations like us that are like, you know, we didn't used to, think, you know, five years ago, we didn't think the PBM model was much of our business. We'd stick in our lane and they'd stay in their lane. But this is a real pain point for employers. And I think something's got to give. Now, maybe when I first came into the industry back in the 1980s, it was all about antitrust, the McCarran-Ferguson protection from property casualty insurers that controlled ISO. And they shared information and they were immune from antitrust prosecution. And there was a huge push to repeal McCarran and upend the state regulatory system. And what happened was the property casualty industry, to avert that, decided 
you know what, we're going to spin off ISO, we're going to make it a private industry, we're going to eliminate any concerns about antitrust. And frankly, that McCarran debate really went away after that. At some point, I think the pharmaceutical, the PBM associations um, are going to have to come to the conclusion that it is an untenable situation that employers, the users, the consumers are not getting the rebates that they're that are, are supposed to be occurring and that prescription drug prices are just uh, untethered. Sorry for my little rant. No, there. that's right. It's a frustrating issue. We've been working on PBM transparency for years. And the problem, I mean, the problem is that they've got so much political clout in this town. It's just upside down. Not only do they have jobs and a you know, footprint in districts all over the country, but they've got a lot of money. And it's hard to, it's, it's rare that I go to an event where there's not a, a PBM, if not a pharma, uh, pharma rep at the table. Uh, now, that's not to say that they're buying votes, but they've got a lot of support in Congress. Uh, so that's our constant challenge. And I was just talking to a staffer the other day um, about some rebate programs, and he was talking about his constituents at home. He's like, yeah, but they really like not paying for their drugs. Try explaining this complex issue uh, to the average voter about why their rebates should go away and they should pay a little more for their drugs because they don't know they're paying, paying it right. roundabout through the other end. And, and I think, you know, they not that they had the protection of the FTC, but it wasn't necessarily on their radar. And, and now it is. And with the naming of that fifth commissioner, I think they'll take the vote again um, and we'll see some movement in there. If, you know, if Congress can't get its act together, um, you know, that'll be up to the regulatory agencies to look at it. You all have been doing some work with our members um, dealing with property insurance issues uh, related to NACATs and some capacity leaving the market. Tell us what's going on there. We've had a lot of conversations with all of our member executives in both California and in Florida. Florida has a special session that is going to be next week uh, on uh, homeowners insurance. We're seeing reinsurers exiting the marketplace and homeowners. Uh, we know all the risks, all the things associated with uh, that marketplace. Uh, Congressman Chris, former Governor Chris, who's running against Ron DeSantis and is going to be wiped out this fall, has introduced legislation that would further uh, undermine the private marketplace. In California, um, it's, you know, while the fair, fair plan exists for structures up to a certain level of a couple of million bucks or so, uh, for that high end homeowners marketplace for on wildfire risk, it has, uh, you know, simply gone away. And, uh, you know, we've not seen uh, this historically that you would see alternative uh, risk transfer mechanisms that would enter the fray, whether it was captives, risk retention groups. Uh, we're just not seeing it and uh, not sure that we have answers on that. But we have been in direct conversations with the, the California Surplus Lines Association, uh, with whom we're very close. And uh, we're going to be providing a lot of data uh, to our members um, on uh, you know, what, if any, alternatives there are and uh, attempting to work with the insurance department in a constructive way. All of our members love to come, you know, in February to D.C., go to Capitol Hill. We haven't been able to do that. Any updates on, you know, with, with the virus and, and restrictions being lifted even here in D.C.? Will it be opening back up soon? <laughs> if Republicans <laughs> win, it's going to be <laughs> Parties and everything. <laughs> You're welcome. No magnetometers going into the House floor. No, no masking requirements. No back requirements. Pistols in the air on the House floor. No oh more gosh. proxy voting, which is will be an excellent thing for America. That will that will be out the door when Republicans retake the House. Um, but you're right; it's still very difficult to get in the bill. It's easier for us to go see members of Congress off campus. 
Uh, and that's why it's really nice having the largest pack uh, in the financial services industry by far, because we're able to just get in front of folks. But we, we just do meetings. It's very difficult to schedule meetings. I've not done too many of them that are in person, When whereas we used to pre-lockdown, we were always all walking the hallways all the time. Um, so yeah. it's like every other workplace in that you know, we're all going to adjust to a hybrid environment. And I have found in one day, for example, I had 20 different meetings, 15 minutes each on one legislative issue with 20 different congressional offices. I could never do that with real shoe leather. Uh, now, the quality of that visit on Zoom is not quite uh, the same. And it's a reflection of workplaces more generally. But it's, uh, you know, we're, we are eager for there to be more normalcy where we can go to hearings and stand out in the hallways. There's no there's no substitute for that. Okay, guys, before we wrap it up, give us some final thoughts on the political environment and then we'll all head off into the Employee Benefits Leadership Forum. I, mean, I can't I can't believe that Joel didn't take my bait on Madison Cawthorn. I mean, that one was, uh, you know, for somebody myself that considers, uh, I consider myself a human encyclopedia of congressional sex scandals. And that guy, that guy gave me so much material in recent months. But... I'm pleased to report that Council PAC was, I think we were in, among the first two or three, then went all in on Chuck Edwards, who was the state senator who defeated Cawthorn. Uh, and I think we all agree, you know, whether it's the squad or it's, you know, the Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert wing of uh, extraction of uh, the exotic uh, <laughs> uh, wing of the Republican Party. I think we all agree. We just, you know, we need members of Congress on both sides of the aisle who will hear us out, who are reasonable, who can work together and try to get to a resolution. Yeah, full stuff. Our issues lie in the political center. We need members of Congress that also sit in the political center. When the wings win, we lose. When the dialogue is about culture wars, they're not talking about issues that actually advance your business and strengthen a competitive marketplace. We lose when we are talking about culture war issues that actually don't matter to your business. And that is not, that's not good for the country. It's not good for competitive markets. It's not good for brokers. So we support center left, center right, Madison Cawthorn. The biggest thing that I'm hearing in our cir the circles that I hang out in is comical, but that's where Kevin McCarthy draws a line. It's when, when they're talking <laughs> oh, about orgies and boy. cocaine. I'm trying you to can try to topple the government, and I'll that's topple fine. topple the but... government. Right, Joel. This is, this is, here I am trying to bring us together in a moment of peace. <laughs> you Kevin urged McCarthy's me. Trying to topple the government. <laughs> for Blair, be the voice of reason down the stretch here. You have the last word. I was going to say I agree with Joel Kay until that last tangent. Um, but, <laughs> you know, we, we do have those members of Congress now, and we've always had them that work across the Aisles. But, you know, what we're seeing now is, um, you know, calling those ones who work bipartisanly, calling them cowards for working with Republicans or working with Democrats. And that's what scares me. Um, but I think, you know, at least on the Republican side, you know, we're seeing that candidate recruitment where it's not, you know, your your severe, extreme conservative right wingers. There are some that are kind of making it through to to the elections that are more pragmatic, um, that will work bipartisanly. But it's just kind of what what breaks through all of that noise. Um, and so I hope that you know we see that next Congress because we're going to be we'll have the same exact conversations that we've been having for the past two years. We'll keep having them, and then at what point are the people just fed up? And final note, Sandy, I, we are just so excited about our employee benefits meeting and Colorado Springs. So many of these issues that we've touched on, whether it's PBMs, whether it's the impact of a road decision um, on uh, healthcare generally, 
um, it, it's a wonderful opportunity for us to gather up with the brightest minds in the employee benefits community and, uh, and can't wait for uh, uh, a successful conference. Absolutely. Thank you guys. Always a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you. That was Joel Wood, Joel Koprud, and Blair Bartlett, the government affairs team for the council. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you.